I wonder how many of us here like a good detective story. Maybe we like to curl up with a Poirot or a Sherlock Holmes novel. Maybe we like to sit down and watch Vera or Shetland on the TV. I know that many of us do. All detective stories work the same way. As we read or watch along, we're invited to join the case, to play the part of the detective ourselves. As the author tells their story, they will leave lots of little details to get us thinking. Most of these details are deliberate distractions, red herrings that take us off on a tangent and keep us guessing. But somewhere in the story, there'll be one detail that will become very important. It's often something that at the time seems almost irrelevant, but it becomes the key clue to working out who the murderer is. Emily and I love to debate things like this. We'll watch a drama series, one episode at a time, and then we'll discuss it together. We'll make our case for who we think the villain is. We'll give our explanation as to how we're interpreting the clues. I'm sure many of you do the same. The point I'm trying to make is this. Good writers know how to tell a story. And they will put in details that, when thought about deeply, will reveal the secret or convey the meaning that they are trying to get across. Now, I hope by now in our journey through this gospel that we have realised that John is not just any old writer. He is an expert. In fact, I think he is a genius, a genius writer inspired by the Holy Spirit. There is absolutely nothing in this gospel that is there by accident. Every word has been carefully thought about. Layers and layers of meaning hang upon almost every sentence. And in a very real way, John's gospel is a little bit like a detective story. John is trying to help his readers uncover the secret of who Jesus really is. And what this means is that as we read it, we should always be on the lookout for clues. Clues that point us to where the deepest meaning may be found. In our passage today, the clue is found in verse 4. John includes a sentence that seemingly has nothing to do with the rest of the story. But when we stop and really think about it, we discover that it has everything to do with the story. In fact, it properly explains the story to us. It opens our eyes to what is really going on. The clue then is this. In verse 4 we read, The Jewish Passover festival was near. Three times in John's Gospel, the writer mentions the Passover. He did it in chapter 2, when Jesus cleared the money changers from the temple. He does it here in chapter 6, with the feeding of the 5,000. And he will do it again, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the final time. 
On that occasion, the Passover is so important to John, he mentions it three times in chapter 11, 12 and 13. The Passover is the crucial clue to understanding this gospel. You see, John is not like other detective story writers who put lots of false clues in to distract us. No, John isn't trying to keep us guessing at all. Right from the beginning, he wants us to understand where this story is heading. Jesus is going to fulfill everything that took place at the Passover. So what did happen at the Passover in the Old Testament? Let's make sure we properly understand this great clue for ourselves. In John's mind, three great things happened at that first Passover. God liberated his people. God provided for his people's needs. And God promised his people a glorious future. Liberation, provision, promise. The Passover takes us back to the book of Exodus. God liberated his people from Egypt. After much pleading and nine plagues, God had no other choice but to take drastic measures to set his people free from the terrible treatment of the Egyptian pharaoh. He sent an angel of death to pass over the land. And that night, the firstborn son of every household was struck dead. Yet he told his people to sacrifice a lamb and paint the blood on the doorposts of their houses. The angel would see the blood and pass over their homes, leaving the firstborn son unharmed. In the morning, Pharaoh woke up to a whole nation full of grief and he could resist the power of God no longer. And finally, he let the Israelites go. It's a story of liberation. An evil power conquered and God's people set free. But that's not the end of the story. After leaving Egypt, the people had to travel through the wilderness. A wilderness with no food and no water. And as the people got hungry, they called out to God for help. And what did God do? He graciously provided for their needs. In the wilderness, God called bread to come down from heaven. Just enough bread for each and every day. It was called manna. And that manna met the people's needs for more than 40 years. But what was all this provision in aid of? What was God's goal? What was it that he was trying to aim towards? Well, all of this was to enable God to keep a promise he had made to his people. When they were in captivity in Egypt, when they were suffering horrendously every day, God made his people a promise. One day, he would bring them into a new land, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the promised land would be a land where they thrived and they could fully live as God's people. This is the major story of the Old Testament. The story of the Exodus, the story of the Passover. It is a story of liberation, provision and promise. 
And I hope most of us are a little bit familiar with it. Now what's really interesting is that every time John mentions the Passover festival in his gospel, he is thinking about these things. Take the story of Jesus clearing the temple in John chapter 2, for example. Jesus liberates the people from the oppressive Jewish leaders and the money lenders who were stopping them from getting close to God. At the same time, he makes it clear that he's providing the people with what they really need. A new temple. His body. It's through him and him alone that they will get the forgiveness they need from now on. And John in chapter 2 wanted us to see in this a promise. A promise of the future when one day everybody will be welcome into God's presence. Because Revelation 21 tells us that in glory there will be no temple. Because God and the Lamb are there. Liberation, provision, promise. Then at the end of the Gospel, when John keeps mentioning the Passover in relation to Jesus' death, we see the same three things. On the cross, Jesus liberates us from what enslaves us, the power of evil and sin and death. On the cross, Jesus provides us with what we need, what we cannot make ourselves, and that's forgiveness. And on the cross, Jesus makes us a promise that if we trust in him, one day we will enter the promised land. The kingdom of God on earth. Can you see? Liberation, provision, promise. This is what the Passover means to John. And to John... Jesus fulfills it perfectly. So the obvious next step for us then is to apply this great clue that John has dropped into the story to this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And we'll find that it works perfectly yet again. So what is it that Jesus liberates the people from in this story? It is, of course, hunger. In this very well-known story, the crowd are hungry. But they're hungry for much more than we might think at first glance. First of all, the crowd are hungry for healing. In verses 1 and 2, it says this. Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he performed by healing those who were ill. This great crowd has flocked to Jesus because they've seen some of his healing. Many of them there that day are hungry for his healing touch within their lives. They are hungry for health and well-being. When we're ill or we see someone we love unwell, we're hungry for the same thing, aren't we? Secondly, this crowd are hungry for truth. Verse 3 tells us that Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. And we know from the other Gospels that from that mountainside, Jesus spent the whole day teaching the people. He preached from morning till evening. He kept speaking so long that the shops had closed, the markets had shut, and the crowd no longer had anywhere to find food. Now you do not listen to a teacher all day Unless you are hungry. 
the truth. Some of us, myself included, struggle to listen to a 20-minute sermon. This crowd were hungry to hear God's word for their life. And thirdly, this crowd are hungry for hope. At the end of this story, we get this detail that having heard Jesus teach and seen the miracle that he did, they tried to make him king by force. And it's a reminder to us of the situation of Israel at the time. Their land has been overrun by the Romans. Daily life is a misery, uh, made a misery by their rules and their taxes. Food is short, poverty is rife, death is everywhere, and they see no end in sight. This crowd are hungry for hope for the future. This story is a very famous story. Even children have heard of the great hunger of the crowd. But in truth, the physical hunger is just a sign of something much more troubling. This crowd are emotionally and spiritually hungry. They have followed Jesus all day to the point of their stomachs rumbling because they're hungry for life. They're hungry for salvation. They're hungry for something more. This cannot be it, God. Let us never forget that human beings are whole people. We are physical and emotional and spiritual beings. And Jesus knew this. And he'd come to satisfy us in all of these ways. And so if you're in church tonight and you feel dissatisfied with life, or you're feeling hungry for more, there must be something more to life than this, then we should turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus with all that we have. Because he's come to liberate us from that gnawing sense of hunger and emptiness in our lives. The hunger of heart and soul as well as stomach. And we as a church should remember that we need to minister to all these different areas as we seek to serve our local community. So what did Jesus liberate the crowd from? He liberated them from hunger. The second question is, what did he provide them with? Well, of course, it was bread. In the Passover story, God provided manna for the people in the wilderness. Daily bread from heaven that literally kept the people alive. In this story, Jesus provides bread again. Again, it comes in a place of wilderness. This crowd are a long way from home. They can't just pop back for a bite to eat. Again, the bread provided is miraculous and it feeds many people. The 12 basketfuls of leftovers collected at the end demonstrate that Jesus' resources are without limit. He can meet our needs. He can meet them and more. But I guess the most important thing for us to notice in this story is how Jesus does it. The exchange that John records between Jesus, Philip and Andrew is key in this regard. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that Jesus has seen the problem of the hungry crowd and he already knew what he was going to do about it. Now that word already is important 
Because it shows us that the following conversation with his two disciples is very deliberate. It's for the deliberate purpose of testing and teaching them. Jesus asked them, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? In response to that question, Philip doesn't have a clue. Even though he's seen previous miracles, he can think in terms only of the immediate reality in front of him, the limited resources available to him. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one just to have a bite, he says. I know I would have said something similar. Andrew, on the other hand, responds slightly differently. Now, let's be honest, Andrew doesn't have a clue what to do either, but at least he takes a practical step. He brings to Jesus a boy with his lunch. Probably the most famous lunch of all time. Five loaves and two fish. And Andrew offers this lunch to Jesus. But even as he does so, he remains highly doubtful that it will do any good. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? He asks. But of course, Jesus gratefully receives the boy's lunch. He gives thanks for it, breaks the bread and miraculously feeds the whole crowd. And the point of all that is this. In life, we often have no idea what to do next in any given situation. So often in life, we feel completely lost clueless, helpless. We don't know what to do. The starting point of faith is not to throw up our hands and walk away. The starting point of faith is to bring what is there to the attention of Jesus. To offer up what little we have and say, here Jesus, use this if you can. Faithful people Give God what they can and trust Jesus to do the rest. Jesus is training his disciples here to realise that God can do things that they never even thought of. God can always do something new, something creative. As the old chorus goes, God can make a way when there seems to be no way. But we have to give him the chance. By remaining faithful to him. So in terms of our Passover clue, Jesus has yet again provided what is needed. He has provided bread, just like the manna in the Old Testament. He has provided the crowd with something that they couldn't possibly provide for themselves. And still today, God can step in and provide for us in our times of greatest need. Of course, ultimately he provides forgiveness and salvation. We cannot possibly provide that for ourselves. But he will also provide what we need on a day-to-day basis. Give us our daily bread. But we are to remember that we do have a small part to play. Rather than giving up when life gets difficult, we have to keep offering up what little we have. In prayer and faith, 
and allow God to do something amazing with it. So following the Passover clue, Jesus has liberated the people from their hunger. He's provided what they needed, bread in the wilderness. But remember, there's one more step to come. The Passover was the promise that one day God would bring his people to the promised land. Does this miraculous sign, the fourth in John's gospel, point us forward to something even better still to come? Does it make a great promise to us for the future? The answer is yes, it does. But sadly, we're going to have to wait a little bit to find out what it is. Because the explanation of this sign comes later in the chapter, in verses 25 to 71. Suffice it to say for now... That Jesus will use this miracle as a sign to teach the crowd that he himself is the bread of life. Bread that doesn't just empower us for a day's work and then leaves us hungry again. But bread that will empower us to eternal life. The promise of this miracle is that God can satisfy us not just for today and tomorrow but for eternity in his presence and we'll come back to that in two weeks time when we read those verses like a good detective story john is going to leave us hanging for a while but for now let's just notice how our passage ends it seems like the crowd there that day have been playing the role of detectives themselves they've been following the clues but sadly they've come up with slightly the wrong answers On seeing the great miracle, the crowd immediately jumped to a conclusion. Jesus must be the great prophet that Moses had spoken of in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus must be the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Quick! He's the one who's going to lead us from slavery to freedom. Uh, And on realising this, they rush and they try to make him king by force. But Jesus doesn't let them. Instead, he scurries away up the mountain to spend time by himself. You see, yes, Jesus is God's king. Yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, he has come to lead the people from slavery to freedom, to bring about a new Passover, but not in the way this crowd expect. Jesus hasn't come to defeat Rome. He's come to defeat evil and sin and death. Jesus hasn't come to wage a violent war, but to offer himself as a sacrifice, to allow his body to be broken, just as the bread had been on the hillside. At this stage, the crowd are interpreting the clues wrong, but one day they will see. As Christians today, we know the ending of this detective story. We know the true outcome. God didn't want just a victorious nation of Israel. He wanted to bring his kingdom to earth in a way that the whole world is invited in. The promised land at the end of this Passover is so much bigger than the Jews thought. And we as Gentile Christians living 2,000 years later on Isla should be very grateful for that.
Come back in two weeks' time to find out a little bit more.